Welcome to Stories from the Midland, a collection of historic tales from Teller County and the surrounding areas. In today's episode, we're following the amazing life of Margaret Brown, remembered today as the unsinkable Molly Brown. This episode was written and is being presented for you by Tommy Allen. While she is best known today as Molly, she always went by Margaret or Maggie. Molly was a name stuck to her by the entertainment industry when the comedy musical western, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, painted a wholly inaccurate picture of her against the backdrop of the Titanic disaster. While she is best known for surviving the ship's sinking, she should just as well be known for her tireless activist and philanthropic works. She was born Margaret Tobin on July 18, 1867 in Hannibal, Missouri. Both parents, John and Johanna, were Irish Catholic immigrants with a strong belief in education, equality, and freedom. As soon as she could, she was attending grammar school, run by her aunt, in which she stayed until the age of 13 when the economic situation of her family caused her to begin working at Garth's Tobacco Factory. Days were long, wages were low, and the area in and around Hannibal was economically unstable. Hannibal, Missouri was located on the western shore of the Mississippi River in northeast Missouri about 100 miles north of St. Louis. It was ideally placed to be a docking port for steamboats, flatboats, and packet steamers making their way up and down the upper Mississippi. It was also the origin of the first railroad to cross Missouri, the Hannibal and St. Joseph Railroad, which connected with the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad at its eastern end. With all of these transportation opportunities in Hannibal, it didn't take Maggie long before she found her way out of her hometown, headed west with her brother Daniel. She was 18 when she headed out. Daniel Tobin was headed to Leadville to find his fortunes in the mines there. When Maggie arrived in 1886, she took work as a seamstress at a mercantile store. And in the spring of that year, she met and was enchanted by James Joseph J.J. Brown. At first, she wasn't keen on marrying a man as poor as J.J. She dreamed of marrying a man of means by which she could provide for her father. But in the end, love won out. And on September 1st, 1886, J.J. and Margaret were married. Of the union, Maggie said, I decided I'd be better off with a poor man whom I loved than with a wealthy one whose money had attracted me. The young 19-year-old bride couldn't know it, but her marriage would also bring that prosperity. But for the time being in their early marriage, the couple struggled financially. Their first child, Lawrence Palmer Brown, was born in 1887, and their daughter, Catherine Ellen Brown, was born in 1889. In these early days, Maggie volunteered to work at the local soup kitchen. J.J. rose through the ranks of the mining company in which he worked. He eventually found himself the superintendent of the Little Johnny Gold Mine and primary shareholder in its parent organization, the Ibex Mining Company. 
Now, a poorly conceived and executed Sherman Silver Purchase Act from the federal government compounded the financial instability from the depletion of the U.S. Treasury's gold reserves and contributed to the silver crash in 1893. Poverty and anxiety followed. But the Browns found themselves rich when J.J. devised a way to make the little Johnny productive. While J.J. worked at the mining company, eventually gaining a seat on the board of directors, Maggie found purpose in helping miners and their families and working to improve area schools. The Brown family moved to Denver in 1894, where they purchased a Queen Anne-style home for the equivalent of nearly a million dollars in 2023 money. But with the turmoil brought on by the silver crash, Maggie couldn't sit still. She continued her efforts to assist miners. She also became a founding member of the Denver Women's Club. A resolute suffragist, she also became an ardent supporter of women's equality movements. She would go on to help Mrs. Jean Milne Gower found the Denver Dumb Friends League, Denver's first animal shelter, which, by the way, is still open today. She was also instrumental in launching the first U.S. juvenile courts. When not working to improve society, Maggie worked on improving herself through education, mastering the languages of French, German, and Italian, in addition to her native English. She also became familiar with Spanish and Russian. But she never forgot where she came from, nor her pledge to provide for her family. Her mother and several other family members came to live with her in Denver. Unfortunately, her husband J.J. believed in a more traditional role for women and didn't look kindly on all of his wife's hard work. He was also much more private by nature, while Maggie was more of a socialite. So the couple began to drift apart. But in 1902, they found a pursuit that they could enjoy together, travel. That year, they headed off on a worldwide tour starting in Europe and heading through Asia. During the trip, Maggie wrote travel articles for Denver newspapers across a range of subjects, including India's caste system. JJ and Maggie returned to Denver to find that the issues and differences that originally drove them apart were waiting for them. And in 1909, the two separated under amicable conditions. JJ provided Maggie a trust fund and additional monthly funding for her to continue her societal work. Between 1909 and 1914, among everything else, Maggie tried to run for Congress several times. She continued her travels, traveling to Egypt and then into Europe where, in Paris, she received word of her eldest grandson's illness. She booked passage on the next ship bound for the U.S. On April 10, 1912, at Cherbourg, France, Maggie was conveyed aboard a tender to a waiting liner that had arrived from Southampton, England, the Titanic. Active by nature, Maggie very much enjoyed exercising, and boxing in particular. And while the ship headed westward, Maggie was known to take advantage of the punching bag in the ship's gymnasium. Carrying Maggie and her some 2,000 fellow passengers, the Titanic steamed into the night of April 14, 1912. Throughout the night, the crew received six sea ice warnings, but they kept the ship speeding into the North Atlantic at 22 knots as the night of the 14th approached the dark and early morning of the 15th. Just before midnight, most of the passengers slept as the Titanic passed south of Newfoundland's Great Banks. 
Suddenly, across the dead calm sea, the spotting lights on the liner shone across a massive iceberg ahead and slightly to the right. Lookout Frederick Fleet called into the phone to the bridge, Iceberg right ahead! The ship's first officer ordered the ship to maneuver to swing around the iceberg's left side, while also ordering the engine telegraph to full astern, telling the engine room to reverse the propellers at full power. But it was no use. The iceberg was too close and the ship was traveling too fast. And on such a massive ship, turning the tiller and reversing the engines took a great deal of time. On the surface, it appeared that the Titanic may have a chance to pass the iceberg, but underwater it was much wider. Near the bow of the ship, the iceberg dragged along the starboard side, opening six long, narrow holes. Maggie told the Newport Herald that, I stretched on the brass bed at the side of which was a lamp, so completely absorbed in my reading I gave little thought to the crash that struck at my window overhead and threw me to the floor. As the evacuation began, Maggie observed that the whole thing was so formal that it was difficult for anyone to realize that it was a tragedy. But with her typical self-imposed responsibility and energy, Maggie began putting women in lifeboats around the more lackadaisical crew and passengers. As the situation became more urgent, it still didn't occur to her to save herself. Finally, two American merchants, Edward P. Calderhead and James McGow, all but forced her into lifeboat number six. In an interview with the New York Times, she said, I owe my life to them. Quartermaster Richard Hitchens was in charge of her lifeboat. Maggie quickly noticed that it could carry more passengers as about one third of the 65 spaces were taken up. But Hitchens was determined to row away from the sinking ship. And against Hitchens' wishes, Maggie and other female passengers took up oars and rowed to keep warm. When the great swell passed, everyone on the lifeboat was convinced the Titanic was gone. It was around 2.20 in the morning. Maggie immediately demanded the lifeboat turn around to retrieve people still in the water, but Hitchens refused. Maggie went up to Hitchens and threatened to throw him overboard if the lifeboat wasn't turned around. Now, in the movie, Molly is portrayed in this moment as waving some gun around. But in the real world, Maggie didn't need a gun. Keep in mind that she was physically fit and in boxing training. And also remember who we're talking about here. Maggie was a powerful presence to behold. So her physical presence and her uncompromising attitude were enough. Maggie took the tiller and the boat's command away from the quartermaster who was spewing proclamations of doom and gloom. She turned the boat around to go try to save others. By dawn, Maggie and her fellow survivors could see that they were surrounded by icebergs and other lifeboats. They'd saved another passenger, a man who Maggie gave some of her drier clothes and put to work rowing to regain some warmth. The Times reported that the other passengers in lifeboat number six referred to her as Lady Margaret and credited her as the strength of them all. At around 4.30 in the morning, the first ship to answer the Titanic's distress call, passenger steamship RMS Carpathia, arrived. At top speed, it had taken her four hours to cross the 60 miles to reach the sinking ship. 
her crew began the laborious process of bringing the survivors on board. Throughout the ordeal, Maggie's mastery of multiple languages proved invaluable as she and other women herded and assisted passengers on the Carpathia, making sure everyone who needed them had clothes and blankets. Maggie also set forth collecting money for passengers who weren't of means. She reportedly collected upwards of $10,000 by the time the Carpathia made port in New York. Maggie was immensely grateful to the Carpathia's captain and crew, especially considering they'd risked the speed through the night to arrive before the much closer SS Californian, whose captain, Stanley Lord, had decided to wait until morning to make his way through the ice. The Californian, by the way, was only 12 miles off, one-fifth of the distance of the Carpathia. Had Captain Lord acted immediately, he could have saved hundreds more lives. Maggie then raised additional funds to reward the Carpathia's officers and crew. She also provided the medals, some of which were solid gold, and awarded the Carpathia's captain a Loving Cup trophy on behalf of her fellow survivors. Following the end of the Titanic disaster, Maggie wrote a letter to her daughter Catherine in which she said, After being brined, salted, and pickled in mid-ocean, I am now high and dry. I have had flowers, letters, telegrams, people until I am befuddled. They are petitioning Congress to give me a medal. If I must call a specialist to examine my head, it is due to the title of Heroine of the Titanic. Maggie never did receive a Congressional Medal, but she did receive the outpouring of gratitude and fame among the American people. In 1914, Maggie was again helping families of miners. Casualties were happening on both sides of the labor conflict in Ludlow, Colorado, but these striking miners were suffering more heavily. The ladies of the camp called out to Maggie for help, and she quickly responded, raising money to send nurses, clothing, and shoes. By this time, Maggie was spending more time in her Rhode Island summer home and was still an outspoken advocate for the women's suffrage movement. When the world was plunged into World War I, Maggie turned her efforts to the American Committee for Devastated France, a group of women who volunteered to help France recover from the war. J.J. Brown died in 1922. Of him, Maggie said, I've never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. And while sources claim that J.J. died without a will, leaving Maggie and her children to battle over the inheritance, this simply isn't true. J.J.'s will, named Maggie as the executor, left approximately half his estate to Maggie and split the other half between their two children. Maggie's next endeavor was stage acting. Then in 1932, she was awarded the French Legion of Honor for both her actions during the Titanic disaster and her assistance to France during World War I. Her recommendation for the honor came from Maison Blarenot and Captain Rostron of the Carpathia. That same year, on October 25th, Maggie went to bed in her room at New York's Barbizon Hotel. She didn't wake up, dying from an undetected brain tumor. She is buried near JJ in the Cemetery of the Holy Rood in Nassau County, New York. JJ and Maggie share the same headstone.
In the years following her passing, quite a few biographies were written. And in 1960, a play named The Unsinkable Molly Brown debuted in New York for the first time hanging the name Molly around Maggie's neck. The rather inaccurate movie followed in 1964. I always find it unsettling when screenwriters rewrite the lives of great people. But the crowd liked it, I guess, and the movie received three Oscars. Hmm. Thank you for joining me for this episode. This is Tommy Allen, and on behalf of Trevor Phipps, have a great day. And should you find yourself watching some Hollywood production on the life of a historic figure, remember that it's probably not quite right. I look forward to having you join me next time for more Stories from the Midland. References used in this episode can be found on its webpage. Visit storiesfromthemidland.com slash podcast. But in the end, love wore out, wore out. Her recommendation for the honor came from Maison... Her recommendation for the honor came from Maison Blarano. Her recommendation for the honor came from Maison Blarano.